Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Beryl Burton was a phenomenon. She won the prestigious British Best All-Rounder title for 25 consecutive years, smashed both the women's and the men's 12-hour record. Her women's record remained unbeaten for 50 years. She was a world champion on road and track. The list is almost endless. And all this at a time when women's racing was barely tolerated, let alone supported by the British cycling authorities, and the wider public and press seemed largely indifferent. Most people know a few stories about Beryl, the infamous licorice all-sort incident and the feud with her own daughter, but much of her life and extraordinary achievements are forgotten. There have been books about Beryl Burton before, including her autobiography, Personal Best, but a new biography by journalist Jeremy Wilson claims to be more detailed and comprehensive than any previous. It's called Beryl in Search of Britain's Greatest Athlete. That's a bold claim, Jeremy, but presumably you think that's a fair assessment of her achievements. I do, yeah. I'm aware that it's a bold claim. And it's the more I research the book, the more I tried to find comparisons for different things that she had done, the more confident I became in the title. And I must admit, when I when it was published, I wondered whether people might challenge me a bit on that and say, well, what about this cyclist or what about this athlete? Or, you know, maybe she wasn't in an era where it was as much competition or or there'd be some, but basically everybody just seems to agree or accept (laughs) that I've spoken to. And those that have questioned it, as I say, one person sort of said, well, did they have the competition in that time? And then when I sort of made the counter arguments, they they went along with it. And I just, as I said, the more I researched and the more I got into looking at comparisons the more the more convinced I became about it obviously it's a point of debate I don't think there's anybody that quite compares to to Beryl Burton from this country maybe even from any country um, at all because there were so many things that she did where she's the only person to have done them I think you can get someone who's won a few Tour de France's or who have set various won a number of world championships but she did things that nobody has ever done before and nobody will ever do again you know as you mentioned winning something 25 years in a row 122 national titles beating a men's record uh having records that stood 40 50 years the you know these were remarkable firsts that winning a world championship on the track and road at the same world championships in 1960 the only British cyclist to win two world championships on the road, just and just 
the the amount of time she competed with and largely beat the best men in the country in time trialing and on that point of competition her competition was state-sponsored riders from the soviet union the eastern germans who we know a lot about obviously the the doping regime that were going on in eastern germany at the time top british men of the time you know she caught barry hoban in a 12 hour she caught Keith Lambert in a twelve in the Otley twelve hour, who was a triple men's national champion, she was beating top British men and top women in the world who were full time state sponsored, and as as we said, the, the records lasted decades and decades. And what was it that made her so good? Partly, obviously, it was physical, but there was a real mental element to everything she did as well, wasn't there? Absolutely. I've been asked that quite a bit because Beryl and her husband, they would dispute whether how much innate talent she had and how much it was hard work. And he would say, you you shopped at Harrods genetically and I shopped at Woolworths because he, he felt that Beryl had clearly some some great physical strengths but clearly there was a a mental side and a and a commitment side that was just off the scale as well and I think with any really great sports person because with Beryl you're talking the top of the top I think you have to have both so I think she did have great physical strengths and they obviously were improved by the fact that she worked on a rhubarb farm full-time and she inadvertently almost had this very demanding day-to-day work which was like strength training like weight training that that we see today and a lot of her a lot of her training as well when you look at what people do now there's great was great variation in what she did lots of easy miles because she rode everywhere never never learned how to drive every holiday was cycling every errand was cycling going to work was cycling she did all these hundreds of thousands of easy miles but then she'd go on these great long rides through the dales which is obviously very up and down steep so it was a sort of form of interval training and she would do these rides along the a1 and and the road between leeds and doncaster which at the time was filled with trucks and wagons and she would ride in behind these trucks and wagons take a rest ride in behind them so she was doing without knowing it and then you add in the strength training of what she was doing were laboring on a rhubarb farm and uh, incidentally a lot of the great african long distance runners have a background of farm work as well which i I thought was quite interesting she's doing a lot of stuff which you can compare to what the variety of what might happen now obviously she was she had a body that could cope with a vast amount of training i mean that was her daughter would say denise who i've spoken to a, a huge amount in the last few years would say I couldn't have done the volume that she did. So she did She did have a capacity to absorb that. But then, as you say, I think she also had this mental side where she, it was a complete way of life. She was cycling all the time. She She trained harder than anybody and she was just obsessively determined to be the best and that that never left her till the day she died you know right up to her late 50s she was still competing still trying to get the very best out of herself and much of it goes back to this childhood illness that she had you know yeah you talk in the book about the traumatic and slightly mysterious illness she suffered um, after she failed her 11 plus exam which did seem to have a major impact on the rest of her life that's right it really did she was 10 when she took her 11 plus and had this attack of the nervous system she was already very academically good had this sort of perfection her brother would talk about this sort of determination that she had and but a sort of perfectionist streak in her 
and she she basically froze when she took this um, 11 plus and had an attack of the nerve nervous system and um, went down with rheumatic fever and something called St Vitus dance it was a very serious illness she was in hospital for nine months and then sent to convalesce in a convent for 15 months if you really stop and think about that two years away from your family between the ages of 10 and 12 um, she didn't see her family while she was in the convent in Southport at all even over Christmas and it was obviously a very methodical quiet place to be but when she came back she obviously had this burning feeling that she'd been cheated and that she wanted to prove herself and she wanted to be somebody. She didn't know anything about cycling at that point and it was a, almost a chance um, crossing with cycling because she she left school at 15 and, and worked in a, in a factory and met her husband to be Charlie Burton who was a member of the Morley Cycling Club. So all these factors came together and cycling became this sort of vehicle for her to channel, channel this um, ferocious desire to, to strive to to be the best. I don't think it was just about winning. It was about being, doing the very best you can. And she was like this in everything, apparently, you know, washing up, keeping her house tidy, work at the farm. She, she, she never stopped, never sat down. The only time anyone could get her to sit still, apparently, was when she would knit. Uh, that was her, her means of relaxation. But she would often talk about this trauma um, right to the end of her life and how it, and how she felt it was a, something she would think about during you know, during moments of great success. And it obviously was a huge factor. And a part of the, one, one interesting part of the book was just going, delving deeper into this because there's been quite a lot of research in high achievers and particularly high achievers in sport. And they found that a real common thread amongst even the British Olympians that had done, done so well in the last decades amongst those that were the real serial winners it wasn't the, the it was the difference between the good and the the super good i think they they termed it um the super achievers the people who were relentless winners like like beryl would have been and they often had a traumatic experience or some sort of driving force in their childhood so it definitely seemed that it was a hugely significant part of her life and Denise also thinks that it her daughter also thinks just the way she was because she was quite quiet quite unemotional very focused thinking about cycling all the time around the house and she sort of felt that everything in its place very particular about keeping everything tidy uh, she felt that probably that would have gone back to the convent and the experience there but it is when you stop and think about it two years away from home at that age is going to have a huge impact on somebody. She married her husband, Charlie, fairly young. How important was he to her career? He was absolutely vital. And it's, uh, I think, as I said, with, with someone who becomes so good, I think you have to have that variety of factors. The, the, I mentioned the trauma, but speaking to some sports psychologists about it, they sort of said it's not something you'd recommend because usually it's a negative thing for a child to have that but in the right if it's then followed up by the right support structure it can be a hugely positive thing and I think Beryl was obviously fortunate that she came into a cycling club via Charlie at the age of 15 that was quite progressive in its attitudes towards women there were other women at the club who still alive who I've spoken to a lady called Sheila 
Waddington and Kathleen Mitchell, t- two ladies that, uh, and they were actually on the committee at the Morley. It was the it, it amal- they amalgamated and became the Morley Cycling Club around this time, and uh, knew Beryl from that time. And her early years in cycling were just club cycling, going out touring, going off to the Lake District on a Sunday, not racing for a few years. And she obviously was fortunate in that she had that environment around her that was so supportive that wasn't because at that time some cycling clubs were not letting women in they weren't letting them into the clubhouse I spoke to other contemporaries of Beryl who had very different experiences so she was fortunate that she met Charlie and also that he was within a cycling club that that was um, very open to women and seemed to include them in everything and it was a real family cycling club just a wonderful wonderful stories of sort of what they would get up to and their how it was like a big family they'd do everything together they'd do christmases in the lake districts they would go off on great holidays around europe all 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 revolving around cycling club nights on a friday night at a guy called nim carline's farm who was the the farmer that beryl worked for so it was all everything was interlinked in that way really and then charlie her husband um just gave up his competitive cycling he was obviously still a, a club cyclist within that scene and, and really was everything for Beryl in terms of mechanics sort of a psychologist a swan a swanier he drove her everywhere um and he really committed um his whole life to being her support structure as well so she was she she had that good fortune as it were as well to add to the physical gifts she had and also that great drive that that she'd come out of childhood well the wider sort of lack of support that british cycle racers in general but especially women received at the time is extraordinary isn't it given that you know what we're used to in recent years people sometimes say oh did beryl become professional but it was she was offered to be professional with rally and she would have then had a similar a similar pattern to what eileen sheridan did when she became a professional just she was the leading site women cyclist before Beryl but it was there wasn't a professional scene you were just basically an ad advertisement for a bike brand and then you would do some of the road record association individual place-to-place records and that was your lot basically so for Beryl there was no she couldn't like Barry Hoban or Tom Simpson or Brian Robinson the top men of the time who were from the same area as Beryl they could all go abroad sign up for a team racing all the classics racing the tours and and th- th- there was a, a an environment where they could they could push themselves against the best in the world week in week out for Beryl if she turned professional there was there was no regular competitive racing and also she wouldn't have been she would have been deemed professional and therefore ineligible for the British team in the world championships which was her kind of yearly outing against the best in the world and also she couldn't have ridden in any of the domestic time trialing which she loved to do because that gave her the chance to race against the men so she turned down at what was a reasonable sum of money at the time but obviously it was the right decision for her because she just loved competing so much so there was no option there for Beryl to to extend herself in the way that men could I suppose one place where she had a small amount of fortune was that the Eileen Gray who was this great pioneer for pushing women's cycling managed to get 
women in the world championships from 1958 and Beryl's first world championships was 1959 so that came along at the right moment for her but no Olympics until 1984 no women's Tour de France till 1984 and I think that's one of the reasons why we, we talked about Beryl's sort of greatness she didn't have that that stage of the Olympics which seems to be often the benchmark or a Tour de France um, when we compare cyclists now but I mean had she had a time trial in the Olympics I can't see that anyone provided she was fit and well and there was no mechanical issues between 1960 and 1980 which is six Olympics one more than Redgrave there's no way she would have anyone in the world would have beaten her in a time trial at that at that point plus she obviously had the pursuit and road race which she won seven world titles in but they weren't really her best discipline she would have been better in a time trial or quite probably a stage race like the tour de france where her incredible endurance would have would have really come to the fore so even what she achieved on the world stage which was groundbreaking she didn't have the option of her best events even then but even at sort of world championship level or when she was competing abroad for Britain, um, you know, there the are stories of Charlie having to sleep in the kitchen. She made her own way there frequently on the train, paying her for herself or people paying for her, uh, raising money to pay for her. Charlie would be sleeping in tents or sleeping in the car. Um, it was a very different world, a completely different world, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, in the research, this was why I love doing it wasn't just the achievement that is obviously the foundation of you you see that achievement and you want to know more about it but I just loved all the stories of how they did it obviously they don't reflect well on British cycling at the time because the men did have more finance and more support it was obviously still on a shoestring I, I guess compared to what you would see in the modern day even for the men but certainly they were always favored um, you know they'd often send a try and send a reduced team there was fundraising a sort of uh, send a girl to the world championship raffles things like this Beryl was fortunate that in Morley um, the local authority there the mayor used to have fundraisers to help her get to events but um, it did create these wonderful set of stories as well although although you would you would wish that and it's fantastic they have the support now you know the Charlie going over to Milan with a spare bike on the on the back of someone's mo- motorbike with a spare bike strapped to his back. Um, he would, as you say, he would be found you know, asleep under a tree, woken by pigs. He was in Paris, slept in their three-wheeler car in Liège when Beryl won the, the world championship there. He'd have to sort of blag his way, you know, into the world championships because he didn't have a pass with, with you know, offer the the, the uh, people on the door a sort of cigarette or something like that. Completely, you know, sneak, sneak the three. There was a story of him sneaking the three-wheeler in behind an official vehicle and the sort of gendarmes kind of waving their arms and, and what have you. And uh, Beryl, would, Beryl would get some accommodation because they did the, the few British women that, that were there would get some accommodation so Charlie would but but Charlie was never although he would end up being the mechanic for most of the women's team because he was so good at that he he, he never he never got any official place in the uh, in in the party but Beryl always wanted him there you know he was crucial to her she would say that that she couldn't produce her best without him and she didn't really want any other support structure so it'd be interesting how she would have how she would have coped with the or how she would have fitted in with the sort of British cycling and the, the huge amount of support there is around 
riders now her, her daughter thinks that psychologically it would have helped because I think she did struggle when she finished cycling to sort of realign well she just didn't really even attempt to realign herself she just carried on racing but I think her daughter thinks it would have helped perhaps to have some more psychological support but she would say I don't need anybody else she was self-coached Charlie didn't although Charlie was logistical in his support Beryl figured it all out herself in terms of her program her training her racing Charlie was the was the the wheels and the mechanics but he wasn't Beryl figured out the rest and she didn't she, she was resistant to having any more support um than that but it would have been really interesting to see how she would have fared in the modern era you're listening to ruler conversations go to ruler.cc to subscribe to the magazine issue 113 is available now appropriately given that we're talking about such an inspirational figure it's the inspiration issue if you subscribe you'll get a whole year of the best independent cycling journalism brilliant photography and design ruler.cc do it as soon as you've finished this podcast This is Ruler Conversations. I'm talking to Jeremy Wilson, author of Beryl, In Search of Britain's Greatest Athlete. I mentioned earlier on uh, the two stories which a lot of people know about Beryl Burton, especially after Maxine Peake's play about her. Um, The licorice all sorts and the falling out with her daughter, Denise. Um, Let's talk about them briefly, uh, starting with the licorice all sorts. Well, that was, it's probably the most famous story about her. It's the Otley 12 hour of 1967. Uh, She already held the women's record, wasn't really expected to challenged the men's record of the time but the way they did the field there was 99 men the last man off was a guy called Mike McNamara who won the best all-rounder that year for the men Beryl was first off of the women who started two minutes behind the men there was only four women so Beryl basically started two minutes behind Mike McNamara so she did have that advantage as it were of 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 knowing that the men were 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 right in front of her so it was as i say september 1967 she was obviously way ahead of the women so there was no chance of any of the women catching her she was she was actually allowed to ride the men's course it was slightly different to the women's i think because they were expected to go a further distance they just had an extra loop for the men before you finished on the finishing circuit but the 12 hours the basic thing is to as far as you can ride in 12 hours you, you start off on a they started off on a course that went round quite a lot of Yorkshire and then finish on a 16 mile finishing circuit and uh, everybody stops after their allotted 12 hours and they were basic her and Mike McNamara were basically neck and neck for the first eight hours give or take a few seconds so she didn't know this but she was basically just holding that two minute on the road gap to him and then she'd actually gone off for her relatively easily and just was getting closer and closer and then on the finishing circuit they'd both ridden it was 213 miles to be precise that Beryl had ridden she he came into view and I actually went out with Denise and we rode around the finishing circuit which was quite interesting because it was quite a really long country road he would have been in view for sure it was a straight long country road he would have been in view for her for some amount of time and she describes it in her book as she actually gets closer and closer to him everyone I spoke to and I spoke to a lot of people who who were time trialing in that time had a story about when Beryl passed them in a race it would be something something like come on lad you're not trying 
or occasionally it would be sort of sticking stick in there chuck was another one i heard or you're on a good one lad um these kind of things you would say to people but usually it was a bit um there was a cycling journalist called dennis donovan who'd who'd put on a little bit of weight when he was riding this race and apparently as, as beryl flew past she said dennis you're disgusting she went <laughs> she went past but she did it with a sort of tongue-in-cheek and she had this very you can tell from the letters that she sent she had a dry sense of humor uh, but definitely had a, a good sense of humor and as she passed Mike McNamara, she sort of felt that something was required. She would normally, as I say, she would normally say something. And just on impulse, she produced, um, she had some licorice all sorts in her back pocket and she passed it to him. And he, he took it from her as she went past. And he said, he said, Ta, love. And uh, she went on her way. And it sort of went down in folklore. But it's abs- I spoke to Mike McNamara before his, or his brother, via his brother, before he died uh, last year. And he confirmed that the story is true. You know, it's been told many times, but it's not one that's been sort of, I don't think it's one that's been embellished or anything like that. It did, it, it really did happen that, that she did that. I don't think she was trying to sort of put him down, really. I think it was just an impulsive, what do I do now? And she, she said she sort of froze at the time because she didn't quite know what she should, if she should do something, because he was the top men's rider of the time. And obviously she pulled away. They stayed about the same distance apart and uh, she finished three quarters of a mile further than him and they both broke the existing men's record but obviously Beryl's record surpassed that and uh, I suppose another interesting aside that I found out from the results sheet was that Beryl Beryl got um, one pound ten for winning the women's race and Mike McNamara got four pounds for winning the men even though so Beryl was like nearly sort of three times less money for prize money even though she'd beaten beaten his time as well but that's obviously how it was and denise burton denise burton cole her daughter who was also an extremely good bike racer famously they had a disagreement on the podium over race tactics which showed i guess both beryl's determined side but also uh, the family dynamics as well yeah absolutely i mean denise is denise was was such a because I didn't know what to expect when I went to Denise to start with and said I'd like to write a book about her mother and if if she'd been really unenthusiastic about it then I wouldn't have you know I wouldn't really it wouldn't have sort of felt right to delve into everything but she was very open about their relationship for good and for bad really really grateful to her mother for introducing her to cycling she loves cycling loves the club scene still rides her bike two three times a week loves getting out in Yorkshire but is very honest about what it was like to to live with Beryl and to live with a super champion and it wasn't always easy it wasn't I mean it came to a head with that incident where Beryl she out sprinted Beryl in the 1976 national championships and Beryl didn't shake her hand on the podium and basically blanked her on the podium they, they never trained together Beryl didn't really give her advice Beryl was very much immersed in her own world of cycling i mean there was another tale um another first for beryl was that or for the family they were the only daughter mother or or father son for that matter that i can find that competed in the same race in the world championships they, they rode the road race several times together because beryl was relatively young when she had denise so it was possible in her late 30s for their careers to coincide 
and uh, I found this anecdote perhaps even more jaw-dropping than the 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 the, um, the podium one. They they were they were warming up for the world championship the day before in Montreal, and Denise had a nasty was riding behind her, hit a pothole, went across the road, knocked herself unconscious on the pavement. Really, it's quite nasty crash. And I sort of said to Denise, "Oh, what did your what did your mother say?" They were just doing a recce of the course. And she said, well, she finished her warm up. Now, whether Beryl knew quite the severity of the crash or not, I sort of said to Denise, did you know what was she just? And she said, well, I think she was quite focused, you know, and that was that was that was how she was. Her cycling was was the priority to with with everything. And I, 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 I told some of these stories to someone I interviewed was Tony McCoy, the jockey, because I thought he was interesting because he was the only person I could find that had won something nearly as many times as Beryl. He was champion jockey 20 times in a row. Beryl was best all-rounder 25 times in a row. And I started telling him some of these stories and he started finishing them. He didn't know any of them, but he started finishing them before I could before I could tell them. He said, he said oh, she, I bet she didn't stop for the crash. I said, no. And he, and he kind of, um, he just sort of said, well, that's how, that's how, that's how it, that's why she was so good. You know, that's, that's how a lot of these, maybe not, Maybe not the majority, but some of I think he could understand that that selfishness, which Beryl was very open about. She'd call herself selfish, you know, um, that they have. And it did create a tension. Uh, Denise stopped living at the family home shortly after that 1976 World Championships. Beryl wouldn't show much emotion to her daughter, but she was very the interesting thing was in the sort of letters and talking to other people, she would talk about Denise all the time, you know, and what she was doing and how she was getting on. But I think it was partly a time of that era and partly just Beryl being Beryl. She wouldn't always show it to, 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 to Denise. But to Denise is hugely proud of her mother. You know, they still saw each other all the time. They broke a tandem record in the 1980s. It wasn't sort of that this incident kind of severed all their relationship. I think it just was a, it just showed an element to the relationship which wasn't a, which was more complex than kind of the nice happy story that might sometimes get presented Denise is hugely proud and loves talking about all her mother's achievements but is also completely honest about what it was like you know living with her and being brought up within the family you know she was plonked on a bike at the age of nine she plonked on a bike earlier than that but independently put on a bike at the age of eight or nine and it was basically if you want to go anywhere you have to take yourself really and their their, their whole focus of every spare hour they had outside of work was cycling and if Denise wanted to come and sit in the back of the car she could if she didn't she'd cycle to her grandmother's and you know take herself to school and back with a key she'd have the kids front door key around her neck and uh you know Beryl wasn't one for parents evenings or um sports days or things like that she was she was 100% dedicated to her cycling but um it, they, they did I think there was a different side to it as Beryl got older because Denise had uh two children and Beryl became a, a grandmother and um the older one Mark she would look after in her later years of her life and so they would see each other on a sort of weekly basis and but when Beryl died, she was cycling over to Denise to to, to actually bring an invite for her 59th birthday. So it, I think it was a close relationship, but a, a complicated relationship, as many family relationships are. Uh, finally, I guess the question around all 
athletes from the past is how good they'd be today. You know, how do you compare Pele with Ronaldo or Mex with Pogacar? Um, and you have to wonder how Beryl would do in, as we've said, in Paris-Roubaix or the Tour de France Femme. But your book um, includes an experiment, doesn't it, which tried to assess how good she was, uh, given the technological advances since. Yeah, that's right. Because I think we mentioned at the outset the title, and I, and I was trying to think of ways to really show how obviously incredible she was. And it, obviously, it's a bit more difficult with her because she didn't have access to the Olympics and Tour de France. So, as I say, those conventional benchmarks um, you can you can you can use to compare it to a sort of to try and benchmark her with a Wiggins or a Cavendish or whoever. So I thought, well, with time trialing, you can, you, there's quite a lot you can do. So I, I initially spoke to Chris Boardman and he was talking about his um, athletes hour record. And then obviously the one he set on the Superman position and he gave me, he reckoned it was, I think it was five kilometers different, something like that. It was that he reckoned it, that the difference was. I got talking to a, a, somebody who, 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 who does aerodynamics for professional teams or any amateurs um, who, who want advice and they can obviously benchmark and, and measure all of this in a wind tunnel. So we said, well, if we can get Beryl, you know, a bike like Beryl would ride the clothing that she would ride, we can at least put a rider on, on that, that equipment and then compare it to them on the, the top equipment of today. And we can, we can work out the aerodynamic difference. And then from that, we can pretty accurately work out what times her best times would be today so um a guy called dave marsh actually has beryl's old rally bike the original one it's on the bottom bracket it's inscribed bb1 um on it so and he, he he was a bit worried about lending it out for the day but i persuaded him and uh, we got i got hold of a a beryl a, a wig as well we, we trimmed it down to get the the right the, the sort of the right look for Beryl and uh, Malcolm Cowgill, who's still the still the secretary of the Morley Cycling Club after about 60 years, had had a, an old Morley jersey. So we got we got a, a rider called Jessica Rhodes Jones, who's a, a very good time trialist now in the wind tunnel. And she rode the rally bike with the Beryl wig and the Beryl clothing. And then she got changed and did the same thing with the equipment that she has that she has now. She had a Cervelo P5, I think they are, the time trial bikes and all the, the socks and the uh, aero helmet. And from there, he was able to calculate what he would project Beryl would do. And um, he still had her 25 mile, 50 mile, 100 mile and 12 hour records ahead of the current records, which are held at the time they were held by Hayley Simmons and Alice Lethbridge. I know the 100 record has been broken in in recent recent weeks although it wasn't broke it was broken from there but it didn't get ahead of what what we found Beryl to be. Um so yeah but it it showed that Beryl was probably better over the longer distances because the 25 and 50 she was sort of a, between 1 and 2 minutes ahead. But then when we got to the 100 and the 12 hours, the, the gaps were quite big. It was seven, eight minutes in the 100 and I think it was 14 miles in the 12 hours. So not in a way, not a complete surprise because that 12 hour record had only been beaten a few years ago. So the, the technology had, had been in long before, you know, the big advantage, big advances with the triathlon bars had come in late 1980s. So the big advances had come in long before the records got broken. So I did, I did quietly expect 
Beryl to still be ahead because she's just so phenomenal. There's a guy called Xavier Disley, who, who, who's an expert in aerodynamics, and that was what he came back with. And he, he said, I don't think there's another athlete in any sport where you could do this and find that. And I think that's right, because if you look at the marathon record in the 1960s or swimming records in the 1960s, those sports have obviously not had the aerodynamic revolution of cycling. But yet the athletic improvement is still huge over the decades, just through things, obviously, like nutrition and uh, training uh, and just what we know about sports science. So it was amazing, really, because all we were all we were allowing for here was cycling equipment, the bike and the clothing, nothing else. So we were literally picking up Beryl from 19 the records were set between 1967 and 1976 we were just literally picking up that barrel and plonking her on a bike with different clothes nothing else in her favor at all so it just it, it i think it showed obviously how incredibly ahead of her time she was but also how smart she was you know with her training and what she did and we always think that there's all these amazing magic marginal gains now and of course, there is certain things that have been really cleverly improved. But I sometimes think it wouldn't hurt people to look back a bit as well and understand what someone like Beryl was doing at that time, because I'd imagine quite a lot could be gained from that, because she obviously was decades and decades ahead of her time and, and just just from a phenomenal athlete. OK, thanks, Jeremy. It's a great book about an uh, extraordinary athlete. Thank you for joining us. Beryl in Search of Britain's Greatest Athlete is available now, published by Pursuit Books. And that's it from this Ruler Conversations. Don't forget to go to ruler.cc to subscribe to the magazine. There'll be a tech podcast along next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.